come now to the scripture. Let me ask you, please, uh, to pray with me. Our Father in heaven, it is uh, a wonder to us that you have graciously, mercifully, kindly revealed yourself to us. We're grateful. Uh, Father, I, I pray now that as we come to the scripture that you would um, enable us to see what's here. Um, the church has often referred to this particular season of the year as Epiphany, um, a manifestation of Christ to us, that you would reveal yourself to us. And so we pray that indeed this morning that this would be for us Epiphany, a time of seeing and knowing all that is true of Christ. So help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Ephesians in chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, I want to read verses 1 through 14. Ephesians, New Testament, Ephesians in chapter 1, please. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And then together... The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Um, I want, if God will help me, in these months to come, I suppose, to take up this letter in the New Testament called Ephesians. Um, usually, as I begin something new, I have to give an apology, which is a defense of why I chose this. And um, typically, my only defense is because it's in the Bible. Uh, and so I think that's, that's appropriate. Uh, obviously, I do some praying before I make these choices, and I read all the time, reading through the scripture, and uh, I have to confess that for whatever reason, uh, at this moment in time, um, I'm drawn to Ephesians. I, I don't know that I've actually ever preached all the way through it in all these years, and um, though we've read parts of it from time to time and taught on it in various Bible studies and things, 
refer to various passages, but um, I don't know if I have preached on it. It's been decades, so it doesn't hurt to go back uh, to it, I suppose, and to consider it. I, I do have to confess, though, that I think that part of part of what's drawn me here is, is this sort of odd little church season that most of you really don't care much about, and that's fine, called Epiphany. Um, it comes after Advent in the history of the church as we've understand how to mark time. We go from Advent to Epiphany to Lent to Holy Week and so forth and so on, just thinking through the life of Christ. And during the Advent season, it's a time of waiting and anticipation uh, and thinking about, oh, there's this one that's been promised is to come. And we think about the first Advent, of course, from the perspective of the prophets and and then uh, the coming of Jesus in the incarnation. But we also think of the second advent of Jesus during that time about his second coming. We're still waiting, you see. And uh, so it's so advent. But then this time of epiphany, you see, the church asked the question during epiphany, well, who came? Who is it? And epiphany means uh, epiphany, a manifestation, a revelation. Oh, I see it. You see, I have an epiphany. I can, I can really see it. And so the typical theme of epiphany is light. To be able to see, you see. Jesus is the light of the world. Well, we can see. We see him and we see through him all things, you see. And and, and then the typical passages for Epiphany, uh, for instance, the coming of the wise men. And the, the wise men coming. Um, it's an epiphany. Well, who are they? The kings, perhaps, or these important people from outside of Israel coming to worship this one who is the king. Oh, that's who he is. He's the king, not just the, he's the king of the world. He's the king of all things. He's the Messiah for all people, the Christ, you see. And, and so, and then another typical uh, text for Epiphany is, is the baptism of Jesus. When his father makes it pretty clear who he is. And he says, this is my son, my beloved son, and I'm pleased with him. And so, so we, we get that. And so I think, just as I know my own head, uh, I think as I begin to think about that, I begin to think about light, and I begin to think about who is he, and I begin to think about Paul, and I started thinking about Paul's conversion, and I started to think about Paul's mission. I, I read that a few minutes ago from, uh, from Acts uh, 26, where, where Paul says that his mission, what he was called to do, God, Jesus said to him, I'm sending you to open their eyes. Epiphany, you see, I'm calling you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so, you know, I, my head, I'm just, you probably don't even need to, you don't care about this, do you really? But uh, that's how I got here. And, and then I, I began, I think, to think about the prayer that Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1. He, he prays, and you know this, verse 15, for this reason, because I, I didn't read this, but for this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in all my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe. Epiphany. That's what this 
all of it, but this letter seems to be. And then not only that, but in, in chapter 3, we see even more insight into Paul's own ministry. Verse 8 of chapter 3 says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring light for everyone. What is the plan and mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authority in heavenly places. And you get light, you see. Not just, not just in Paul's day, but in all days, and not just for us, but everything. The seen world and the unseen world, to bring light in the midst of that. And then, and then just in our own lives in chapter, in chapter 5, he puts it like this in in um, verse 8, for at one time you were darkness, not just in darkness, but we are very selves. We're darkness. For at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord, you see. Walk as children of the light, that is children who can see. Children who've been blessed by God, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true and Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anyone is exposed to the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. In other words, again, just this this whole notion of revelation, this whole notion of epiphany, this whole notion of seeing it, this, this whole notion of being it, you see. And so, here I am in Ephesians. Um... And what do we find? I mean, what do we find really when we, when we come here? What's the light that is given to us? Well, I'm going to spend, as you might imagine, a week or two um, on these opening verses. So just today, just introduction, just kind of get a feet wet, just to get a feel for what's, for what's here. And the point, especially in verses 3 through 14, the point that we see here is that Paul's revealing to us the light that we see. He wants to make certain that we know, above any other shadow of a doubt, that our salvation is from God, not from ourselves. That our salvation is from God, not from ourselves. And he begins by laying out this this sort of Trinitarian um, bringing about of our salvation. You know, if someone asks you, who saved you? That is, from whom does your salvation come? You could, you could answer that, I suppose, in a variety of ways. I think our instinct is to say, well, Jesus. And that wouldn't be wrong. <laughs> Jesus has saved us. But, but a more complete answer would simply be, God has. God has saved me. And, and that's the point of these verses, at least one of the points of these verses, that God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, has saved me. And we, we see that here. In the, we could divide this up in, in, in some ways. Verses 3 through 6, for instance, are talking about the, the Father. And then 4 through, I'm, I'm sorry, 7 through 12, the Son. And then 13 and 14 verses, uh, those particular verses are talking about the Holy Spirit. But, but the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all one, God has worked to save us. And what we see in these opening verses of uh, verses 3 through 6, focusing on the Father's involvement in our salvation, is that he's the one who, we could say, ordains it. 
right? It's his plan. He ordains it. To ordain it means to arrange it. You ordain, you arrange it. Arrange every part and every piece and everything that needs to be in place in order for this to come about. You arrange it, which gives you this position of being sovereign over it, right? You're the Lord over it. You're arranging all of these things so that the salvation of people, particular people, the salvation of people can come to pass. So he's arranging all of it. He's the one, the Father ordains it. And so what does he do in order to arrange this? Well, notice verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So in order for us to be blessed, we must be in Christ. Because the blessings will ultimately come through the work of Christ. So somehow we, if we're going to be saved, have to be in Christ or attached to him. This is, we'll deal with this in more detail later, but, but just to get in your minds, so your, your thinking is along the same track as Paul's. This whole notion, this is what we call covenantal language. To be in another. To be represented by another. So that what is true of this one is true of me. What is accomplished by this one is accomplished for me. Quickly, you know this, but when the Bible begins, it it begins with all human beings covenantally in a man by the name of Adam. So that whatever happens because of Adam and to him and from him and through him happens to everybody who's in him, which is everybody, right? He represents all human beings. And thus, when he sinned, we sinned, the Bible said. Thus, when he was condemned, we were condemned. Thus, when his um, nature was corrupted, then our natures, we find, being corrupted because we're attached to him. Well, Well, now, for that to be reversed... We need to be attached covenantally to another who doesn't sin but succeeds. And so, for us to receive the blessing of salvation, it's necessary for us to be covenantally attached. I know it's a snowy day and your minds are mushy, but think about this. We have to be attached to another. This one is called a second Adam. He's Christ. So, so in order for us to receive this salvation, we have to be in Christ. And so, how do we get there? Well, it says, amazingly so, verse 4, even as he chose us in him. So, it was the Father's work, in ways only he understands and knows, that he chose us, the us there, believers, to whom Paul is writing, and us who are believers, And to any who will become believers, he chose us in Christ. When did he do that? Well, he did it just to prove it didn't have anything to do with anything we did, that he did it before the foundations of the world. And and he chose us in Christ for the purpose that we would be holy and blameless before him. Holy, set apart, But we get it when he says holy, we mean set apart and accepted, thus blameless. How could we be holy and and blameless? Only by being in Christ who is holy and blameless. Right? He's the holy and blameless one. 
And so in him we're holy and blameless. And then in love, he arranged something else. He predestined us, that is, set out our destination for all those who are chosen in Christ. We're not doing anything here except rereading this to you. Just saying this is what it says. Um, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. That's profound. We'll have to spend some good amount of time on this whole idea of adoption because adoption in the days of Paul was different than the adoption in our day. When, When we adopt, we adopt really for the sake of the child. When they adopted, they adopted for the sake of the family. They were adopting someone who they could have in place to take care of the family, to take care of the needs and the governance, really, of the family. They would adopt someone who would be the heir and so that the family could continue on. And so this adoption... As sons, it was sons, men, males who were adopted in this sense. But now, this adoption, amazingly so, is for male and female, for Jew or Greek, for slave or free. It changes everything. And so, so now you see, he says, we've, that our destiny for those who've been chosen in Christ to receive the benefits of Christ, that, that, that our destiny is that we will be not only holy and blameless, but adopted into the very family of God. God is our Father. We, together, are brothers and sisters. And we, then, have this inheritance as family that's eternal, that can't be taken from us, that's ours, and that is the very blessing of God upon us. Wow. Wow. All right, so he's arranging. So we see who saved you. Well, the father saved us. So how did he, what role did the father play? Well, he arranged it. <laughs> he's, he's sovereign over all the pieces and over all the parts to make sure everything happens. And so what he did was he chose us in Christ so that we would receive the blessings of Christ and that we would be holy and blameless then in his sight and adopted his. Now, what about Jesus, verse 7? In him, that is in Jesus, we have Redemption through his blood. Redemption uh, means that we've been purchased. A price that's been paid for us. When the word redemption is used in this uh, time of history and in this context, it means that a slave was being ransomed. The slave was being redeemed. The purchase price for someone who was enslaved had been paid so that they would be free. And so the purchase price is the very blood of Jesus. So did he play a part in our salvation? Well, yeah. He gave himself for us. He shed his blood. He died. His death, he took the wrath of God upon himself for us. His death for us paid the price to free us from the wrath of God, from the slavery to sin, from its penalty, from its power, ultimately from its presence. You see? So in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Um, Again, he did it, God, the Father, to ordain every piece of it, that it would come to pass. Then the Son, to achieve it, and then notice the work of the Spirit. Verse 13, 
in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, uh, when you think of the word sealed, I often think of those little plastic bags that you, I can never do this. But you're supposed to seal them. You know, these little things, they're all supposed to fit together and you're supposed to go. Never works for me. Uh, I just sort of crumple it up and stick it in the freezer. But, um, and which is not a good thing to do, I've learned. But, uh, but it isn't that kind of seal. It, it's this kind of seal that you would get on a letter from someone important. And so if you get a letter from the governor, let's say, and you wonder if this is just perhaps one of my friends playing a hoax on me, uh, look for the seal. It should have the governor's seal. Uh, if it doesn't, it says, no, this is authentic. This is real. You can trust this. You can, you can be assured, you can be certain that this really is from the governor because it has his seal on it, if you will. And that's the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is the seal. Uh, he, 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 he's the, he's the guarantee. Some of the other translations refer to him as the down payment, if you will. Uh, that, 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 you know what a down payment is. If you're buying a house, you put a down payment on it, put down a certain amount of money that convinces the lender that you're good for the rest of it. And he says, well, if you've given me this much, I'm sure you'll give me the rest of it. Well, the Holy Spirit, you see, God says, I'll give you my spirit. That should convince you that you're really mine. That should convince you that you're really saved. That should convince you, you see, uh, that I'm good for the rest of it. Everything I've promised, if I'm going to give you my, my very presence, my spirit, you see. And he says, he's the very guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So, uh, it's clear, it seems, that Paul is saying, if you want to know who saved you, you would say, God did. You wouldn't say you did. You wouldn't say anybody else did. But you'd say God did. It's, I don't know how we can get anything else out of this. Not only that, he's saying all of this is, is God's, God's will. Notice um, in verse 5. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So this was his doing, you see. Uh, his Will and all of, all of that. And then in verse 9 we see the same thing. Making known to us the mystery of his will. This is, this is God's doing. Uh, not ours to make known the mystery of his will. And then again in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him. Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So his will, not our will, his will. This is what's driving this. God is driving our salvation. And, 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 and then we have to ask the question, I suppose, well, why, why, why do we need to know this? Why do we need to know this? Why, why is he telling us this? Why is he bursting forth in this great bit of praise, if you will, to God? Well, it's for that reason. Later, he's going to say it in kind of a negative way in chapter 2, which is another passage we're very familiar with. Uh, In in chapter 2, he says to us, verse 8, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. By then he's saying, remember, it's God's doing, not your doing. I think if you had more paper, he would have put a little footnote to say, Remember, I told you about this in chapter 1. 
And so it's, it's God's doing. You're saved by God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father ordained it so that it would come to pass. He arranged all the pieces of it. He chose you and predestined you. The Son gave himself for you to achieve what the Father had already laid out and arranged. <coughs> and then the Spirit has come to apply it to you and to seal it and to give you all the authenticity that it's really from God. And so, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works. Here's why we need to know this. So that no one may boast. That is, no one may boast in themselves. Because you see, if we begin boasting in ourselves, we'll miss it. We begin boasting. To boast in yourself means to take confidence in yourself. To boast in yourself is to think, well, I did this. I should be congratulated for this. And I should take confidence. He says, no, no, if you begin to take confidence in yourself, you'll miss it. And so you need to know how thoroughly and how completely your salvation really is from God. (coughs) From before the foundations of the earth. He chose you to be in Christ, that you may receive the blessings of Christ. And then he sent his son so that all these blessings would come to pass, so that through his blood we might be redeemed, set free from sin, and have forgiveness of sins, you see. And then he sent his spirit to to seal it all, to make sure it all happens in you, to apply it to you. And, And so you know it, it's really true, you see. And you can really depend on it and count on it, so that you won't boast in yourself, so that you'll boast in the Lord. And, and that's what this chapter one is that I've read beginning in verse three. It's all the boasting you see. It's boasting in the Lord. This opening expression in verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, if you have a new international version, it translates that praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because to bless the Lord is to praise him. To bless the Lord is to give him thanks. To bless is to say something good about. That's what the word means. If you're blessing another person, you're saying something good about them, saying something good to them, you see. So to bless the Lord is to praise him, to give him, to boast, really, in him. Uh, I lead um, morning prayers a couple of mornings a week for in very, a couple of different groups. Um, and, and if it's from the Book of Common Prayer, and sort of at the very end, there's a little, little couplet that starts like this. It says, let us bless the Lord. See, I say that because I'm me. Uh, I get to say those things. So let us bless the Lord. Then everybody else says, thanks be to God. Well, how do you bless the Lord? Well, you say thanks. You say praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us. In the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We, we, we bless him. You, you know this one too. Psalm 103. Uh, the psalmist begins by saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. And then, to, to really be able to do that, he goes on verse 2. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Well, of course not. If you're going to bless the Lord, what do you have to do? You need to think about all the benefits. Why? Because to bless him is to give him thanks. To bless him is to praise him. To bless him is to boast in him, if you will. So bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, 
who forgives all your iniquity. Bless the Lord. Right? Bless the Lord. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles, you see. And you go on and on and on. But, but it's, it's a whole psalm about boasting in the Lord, about praising him. So, so that's what Paul's doing here. He's rewriting Psalm 103 as it pertains to our salvation. Blessed be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. So what are we praising him for? We're praising him for our salvation, that he's the one who ordained it. He arranged it. If he didn't, we'd be lost. Well, to what degree did he arrange it? Every piece and parcel, even to the point of before the world began, he chose us in him. And we're to take that and receive that and enjoy that and say, wow, thank you. I would have, uh, I would be lost if left on my own. But you chose me in Christ to receive the blessings of Christ. I don't deserve that. That's why he begins in verse 2 of, 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 of chapter 1 when he's just sort of saying hi to them. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's the point of it. He says, it's all grace. Well, grace means it's not only unmerited favor. We didn't merit it. We don't deserve it. And we don't have a category really in our brains for that until the Lord gives it to us. It's amazing to us. We, we in our relationships with each other, always think that I, I have to perform in some way so that you'll like me. I have to perform. I have to, I have to prove myself to you in some way. I have to give you something of value so that you'll value me. And if I don't do that, then you, you won't. That's, that's how we think, you see. But God says, no, no, no. That isn't how it is with me. You can't impress me. I made you. I'm your God. I'm your creator. You know, you're not like me. I'm way above because I'm God. I'm not impressed with you. I can love you, but... You remember Jesus. He, he told the story. A bad way to run a business, but it's the right way to run, of course, the kingdom of God. He, he hired some people early in the morning and he paid them a wage for the day. Hired people midday, paid them the same wage. Then he paid the others. Hired people an hour before quitting time and paid them the same. And the first ones hired, just like you and me would say, wait a minute, this isn't fair. The Lord says, of course, it's grace. None of you deserved any of it. And that's the point. We go, okay. But, but we know deep down inside that has to be the way that it is. Because if it's not, then we're really sunk when it comes with God. And so he's just laying that out for us. He's saying, it's just grace. And from grace comes peace. He says, grace and peace. Because you see, when this grace comes, we know forgiveness of sins. We know we've been reconciled with God. Um, we have a seal of the Holy Spirit. We know that somehow he's done something so that we can be his. And, and that brings peace to us. We have peace with God. There's no longer any hostility, you see. We're not running. We needn't run from him anymore because we know that he accepts us. And his wrath is now satisfied in Jesus. So he receives us to himself. What a gift, you see, with grace, and it brings peace. And as we'll see as we read through this, it brings peace, not only with God, but with each other as we live life together. Grace, grace and peace were to boast, you see, in him. And that's what he keeps going on in verse, in verse uh, whatever it is, verse 5. He, he says, 
um, to the praise of his glorious grace. See, when we get it, we really understand this. Then, then we see his grace is glorious. And we praise him for it. We, we're flabbergasted. Every time we think of our salvation, goosebumps rise up on our neck. How can this, how can this be? How can this really be? It's to the praise of his glorious grace, verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Wow. And then the Holy Spirit is the seal for us, the guarantee to the praise of his glory. You see, this is the whole point of it, to make us people who praise him, who boast in him, who depend upon him and him alone. And if we don't get that from this, we're getting other things and we need to stop those other things and get this. We need to really realize that our salvation is wholly and completely from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that when we read a passage like this, people have all kinds of questions. I don't think Paul had those same questions when he wrote this. Oh, we have, we have questions like, well, what does this mean? Does this mean I don't have to do anything? This means people don't have to do anything. Does this mean we don't have to evangelize? Does this mean we don't have to pray? This means we don't have to believe. I mean, God just chooses us and we're saved. And I said, no, of course, Paul, Paul was the great zealous evangelist. He believed this. But there was never one who gave more. There was never one who obeyed more wholeheartedly. There was never one who pursued others with the gospel of Jesus, even to his own suffering. He's writing this from prison. <laughs> and even after he says this, he prays for them. <laughs> in fact, in chapter 6 and verse 20, he combines prayer and evangelism. He says, pray for me that I'll have boldness to declare the truth of the gospel. And so none of this keeps us from praying, keeps us from obedience, keeps us from evangelizing. In fact, the opposite is true. This gave him the utter confidence to do it because he said, I'm not alone. God is at work. This is God's deal. He's called me into this work and thus I'll pray to him. Why wouldn't I? Because if I'm completely dependent upon him. So I'll pray and I'll have others pray for me and I'll go and I'll share this gospel of Jesus Everywhere, It didn't impede any of his obedience or any of his prayer or any of his zealousness for evangelism. Um, But what it did was caused him to boast and depend utterly and wholeheartedly upon God. I mean, in one sense, intuitively, this, for me, makes a tremendous amount of sense, I think. How could I ever be called a saint? Paul writes to the saints in Ephesus, to the saints in Lawrence. Who are the saints? Well, they're not the special Christians. The saints in the Bible are the holy ones. Who are those? Those are the ones whom God has chosen to be holy and blameless in his sight because of Jesus. How could I ever think of myself as holy unless God has done something? How can I ever think of myself as blameless? Unless he's done something, you see. How can I ever think of myself as a child of God unless 
He's done something. But I don't have to take my experience or my intuition or my word because this is Paul's. Paul opens this letter by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul is saying, listen, this isn't my will, but it's God's will. I'm being sent by Jesus to tell you this. And and we read about Paul being sent by Jesus. And and, and you, you, you wonder, how could Paul say anything else about anyone's salvation but what he's just said here? given his own conversion and calling. I mean, I I read it out of Acts 26. You can read it out of Acts 9 in its particular context. That is when Paul was coming to this place of meeting Jesus and being converted. But, But you might remember there was a man named Stephen. He was a believer in Jesus and he was killed for his faith. Saul of Tarsus, who later became Paul the Apostle, Saul of Tarsus was the one who approved the execution of this man, Stephen, because he was a believer in Jesus. And then in chapter 8, we read in Acts that, that, that this Saul of Tarsus wreaked havoc on the church and there was great persecution in Jerusalem because of Saul of Tarsus. And then we read that he went to the high priest in Jerusalem and asked if he could go to Damascus because what he wanted to do was to take believers in Damascus and to bring them back to Jerusalem uh, so that they could be tried, so they could be arrested, so they could be put in prison, so they could be executed. So on his way to Damascus, you know the situation. I read it, but you know the situation that, 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 that Jesus shows up to Saul of Tarsus. Uh, and and, and he, he's blinded, saw this, by the light of Jesus. And this man, Ananias, is told by God to go to Saul. He doesn't want to, but he goes. And he prays, and Saul receives his sight and is baptized and is called to go and bring the light of the glory of God that is in the face of Jesus Christ to others, you see. And how else could Paul explain what happened to him? It would be a little disingenuous if he said, well, you know, I... I had this longing for God and I, I was seeking to follow him and, 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 and I heard about Jesus and, and, and I contemplated it for a while and then I said, yes, I'll put my faith in him. <laughs> well, he did put his faith in him, but he'd have to say, mm, it wasn't my idea to start with. That, that somehow I was visited in a special way by Jesus under the authority and the ordaining of his father to come to me and that's how else could I explain this I can't I can't put myself into this and say I had anything to do with this I mean you know the story Paul would say how this happened how I was chosen in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love he predestined me to be adopted as his son to the praise of his glorious grace and uh, his son then Redeemed me by his, by his blood, bringing forgiveness of my sins. I've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of this inheritance. How else could he explain it? How else can you explain it? <laughs> really, push comes to shove. You see others who are, frankly, nicer than you are might even live lives that are more exemplary in various ways than you, than yours. Might be smarter than you. Some maybe even read the Bible more than you. 
Yeah, you believe. You, me, how did that happen? Paul's just saying, get the fact, receive it and enjoy it. That God chose you before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless in sight. He loved you, set out a destiny for you that you would be a child of God. And you're in Christ so that the benefit of Christ's death is yours. And he gave you his spirit to make sure that you'd get it and know that. And he's the guarantee. And why? Hmm. To the praise of his glorious grace. The night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring? We're declaring that God chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world else we would be lost. He predestined us in love to be adopted. Else we would be estranged. That Christ redeemed us by his blood for the forgiveness of sins. Else we would be condemned. And he gave to us his spirit that we might really know this that we might believe. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us that we would know even now the work of Christ. That you sent him for this particular purpose to save his people from their sins. His people, those ones you've chosen and predestined and would seal. And so I pray that you would take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that we would know that this very Christ who has given himself for us still lives and by his Spirit is among us even now. And that you would enable us as we come and take of this bread and this juice that you would enable us to be assured of his presence with us by the Holy Spirit who is in us, this very one who is authenticated this gospel and our salvation who's authenticated the work of Christ and lives in us that we might know that your blessed inheritance this wonderful promise of eternal life and all that comes with it is ours so please do all of that as we come to this table in Jesus name Amen.